at Island Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions, questions that might involve a passage of scripture they're studying a challenge in their life or ministry that they'd like biblical counsel on. So if we can be of help to you by God's grace, we will do the best we can. Again, locally, the phone number is 843-525-1859, 843-525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is WAGP, W-A-G-P uh, TV, excuse me, it's TBL at WAGP.net, TBL at WAGP.net. Um, so let's go ahead and take our first caller. All right. Very good. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Hey, good morning. How can we be of help today? Um, with the missions week that we had last week and just the amazing testimonies of all these missionaries from around the world, it was just, it was just, uh, I just, I, the work I, I use is just amazing. Uh, it, it got me thinking about spiritual gifts and what a wondrous thing it is that the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, gave us this spiritual gift and gave these wonderful people that spiritual gift of evangelism. And just it made me think about how many people just don't realize that we do have these spiritual gifts and, and how to understand them, recognize them, and use them. I just wondered if you could speak a little bit about that. Well, it's a great question, and um, l- let me just say, certainly there are some people who are at our conference who had the gift of evangelism, but many had other different kinds of spiritual gifts, and of course there are uh, 20 spiritual gifts that are listed in the New Testament. Most would agree that at least 16 of these gifts are still being given today. So some of our ministri- missionaries have the gift of administration. There was one brother with an organization who... Uh, has that ability, and he coordinates missionaries from the organization that uh, he works with. Uh, There's another uh, sister who has the gift of serving, and she works for Wycliffe up there at their headquarters in North Carolina, and she just does kind of a, has a servant's heart, and they needed some people who could invest the best hours of their week. Um, There, there's another brother who has the gift of apostleship, and he's involved in Uh, church planning. Of course, that's to be distinguished from the office of apostle. There are no apostles today, but there is the gift of apostleship. Uh, Another brother has the gift of pastor teacher, and he's uh, in India leading a church. So uh, there are, uh, you don't necessarily have to have the gift of evangelism to be a missionary, but of course you do have to have a call from God. And we are, of course, as believers, right where we are, to be missionaries of sorts. Uh, God has entrusted the Great Commission to every Christian, 
It's not something that is exclusively given to uh, missionaries. Sometimes we take uh, go therefore and make disciples and we say, yeah, we, we need to go and send somebody to this nation. When Jesus says all nations, it's in deference to the limited commission where he earlier said in Matthew's gospel, don't go into the way of the Gentiles or to the Samaritans, only go to the lost house of Israel. Because God is a promise keeping God. He wanted to underscore that he had kept his promises to the nation. But now, of course, he broadens the commission to go to all nations. But literally, it's a participle that reads as you go, as you're going. In other words, as you're going this week through uh, the place you live, wherever you may be listening to me today, either uh, locally or through the Internet, as you go. Uh, Try to make disciples, make believers, converts, you could say, of all peoples, irregardless of their background or ethnicity or whatever it might be. That's the command that God has given to all of his people. Uh, But there might be an area of focus based on the area of your giftedness where you will kind of camp. And of course, in the New Testament, ultimately, the Great Commission is to be fulfilled through the local church. Every believer is to be a member of a local church where you have all these various gifts that are functioning together. And as we use our various spiritual gifts, then the church is matured and it it reaches the fullness that belongs to Christ. Good question. Appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. You can reach us again locally, 843-525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Wayne from Winslow, Maine, has a question about the lineage of Christ. Matthew makes a point to walk down through the lineage to show the connection from David to Christ. And uh, Wayne understands this is important to reveal how prophecy was fulfilled. The only question he has is why the lineage leads through Joseph to Jesus and not Mary, since Joseph had no biological connection to Jesus where Mary did. Was this strictly due to the fact that culturally the people would only understand a connection if it were through a male portion of the bloodline? Uh, He's not asking uh, out of doubt. He firmly believes the Bible is the infallible word of God, just seeking to better understand more deeply. Thanks very much for your program over the years. Well, it's a a great question. In Matthew, of course, the theme of Matthew is to document that Jesus is Israel's king. And he opens the gospel with a genealogy to show that Jesus had a legal right to the throne. But there is a verse that would jump off the page to any Jewish reader uh, because of the name that is mentioned in the genealogy. And of course, uh, he he starts with Abraham, who is the founder of the Jewish nation and traces the lineage of Messiah through Abraham, because from Abraham, all the nations of the world were going to be blessed. How is that possible? Because salvation is from the Jews, as Jesus told the Samaritan woman, woman, that's a a truth that God had revealed in the Old Testament, that Messiah was going to be a descendant of Abraham. And so with that said, he begins to trace the genealogy. And when you come to verse 11, it says into Josiah were born Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. So that's the thing that would have jumped off the page to a Jewish reader. Jeconiah. Yeah, Jeconiah. Why? Because of what God had said about Jeconiah. Uh, by the prophet Jeremiah. So I've just turned there. And so let me um, 
Let me start reading in Jeremiah chapter 22 and in verse uh, 25. And I shall give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Now, remember, Jeremiah is what we call pre-exilic prophet. He uh, preached to the southern kingdom, Judah, which was made up of two tribes named after the larger of the two, Judah and Benjamin. And just like the 10 northern tribes had been warned by prophets, God raises up Jeremiah to warn the two southern tribes, the kingdom of Judah, that if they didn't repent, then God was going to bring judgment. And foreseeing that, he says, and I give you over into the hand uh, of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those who you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. So we've been uh, studying King Nebuchadnezzar. We're going through the book of Daniel on Sunday morning. We've just cracked the door to it. We're just in the second chapter. And it's an important book because it is the key in many ways to understanding biblical prophecy. Uh, the premillennial, pre-tribulational view is unfolded in kernel form in the prophet Daniel. And God's plan, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentile nations, is unfolded. And so Nebuchadnezzar was God's instrument, his servant, as Isaiah the prophet refers to him, not because he was a believer at that point, but because he was a tool in the hand of a sovereign God. And God promised that he was going to use Nebuchadnezzar to carry away his people in judgment off to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans. And I shall hurl you and your mother who were born you into your country where you were not born and there you will die. Again, he's speaking to Kaniah or Jeconiah, as he's called. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return. Is this man, Kaniah or Jeconiah, a despised, shattered jar? Yes, he is. It's a rhetorical question. Or is he an undesirable vessel? Yes, he's an undesirable vessel. Uh, Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this down, childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. So God makes a prophecy about this man, Kaniah or Jeconiah. He's called by both names in the Bible. Uh, And Matthew uses the longer form of the name, uh, just like we say David and Dave. Uh, Matthew uses the longer form of the name Jeconiah. And God said that you can write him down as childless. Well, in what sense? Because um, his genealogy is listed. He has kids. What do you mean he's childless? Well, again, context is everything. It's just like um, Isaiah 53 that speaks of Messiah, who's going to have an offspring. Well, in what sense? Well, a spiritual offspring. He would have children who would believe Uh, in his work, in his death, burial, and resurrection that Isaiah the prophet spoke of in the 53rd chapter. And here he's speaking here of a political offspring in the context that no one is going to come from Jeconiah's loins who's going to sit on the throne. So just as God said, Nebuchadnezzar came down, carried away Jeconiah, and he put his uncle, not one of his descendants, Uh, Nebuchadnezzar assigned a vassal king. His name is Zedekiah, who sits on the throne. And he's the last sitting king in Israel's history. And so there's never been a king on Israel's throne since uh, Zedekiah. And so here's the challenge. When, When Matthew records this, 
And after the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born and his kids are listed. Well, why does he trace the lineage of Messiah? Because it all comes all the way down to um, to Christ. To, it says in verse 16, and to Jacob was born Joseph, the, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, by whom being feminine, going back to Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Messiah. So he's tracing the lineage of the Lord Jesus, uh, beginning with Abraham, and he comes all the way down to Jeconiah. And again, that would jump off the page because someone would say, well, wait a minute. God said that there would be no political leader who would sit on Israel's throne. And yet he traces him through Jeconiah. So none of his children could sit on his throne. Well, Jesus was not a child of Jeconiah. So he's demonstrating in Matthew that he had a legal right to the throne through Jeconiah, but that he um, could not be a child of Jeconiah because his lineage would be cursed. So he has a legal right because he's a descendant of Jeconiah who comes from Abraham, but he's yet not a child of Abraham. And so it jumps off the page like, well, then how's this going to happen? And of course, among other reasons, God gives is the virgin birth. Jesus is not a physical descendant of Jeconiah. When you come to Luke's gospel in Luke chapter three, he traces the lineage uh, in a different way. It goes uh, all the way down to, to Adam in Luke three. So he's not going through Abraham and he's going, if you remember, through Mary's lineage. So what is he doing in Luke's gospel? Uh, When he comes to the um, descendants of David He doesn't go um, uh, in the same fashion that he did in Matthew's gospel. Because if you read Matthew 1 very clearly, he specifically points out into David was born Solomon um, by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And to Solomon was born Rehoboam. And he carries it down through uh, Rehoboam. When you are in the lineage in Luke's gospel, it's done differently. Um, It says very specifically and very clearly, it says um, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse. He's going backwards, of course. And so he doesn't go from David to Solomon. He goes from David to Nathan. Whose lineage is he tracing? He's tracing the lineage of Mary. So Jesus had a physical right to the throne through Mary. Because he's a real Jewish man who's a descendant of Abraham, but he has a legal right through Joseph. And so the differences in the two genealogies, uh, it may seem like a small point, but it's a very important point. We could spend an hour on it, but we won't. But I hope that's helpful to our caller from Maine. Let's go to the next one. All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. A listener says, if tongues displayed today are not for today, how do we explain the gifts of tongues and interpretation in 1 Corinthians? Well, it's a good question. If you want the long answer, uh, you might consider going to search, call Search the Scriptures and ask for the handout from our spiritual gifts course. And that might be a helpful course for some of our listeners to take. I did my doctoral dissertation on the subject of spiritual gifts and how it relates to the local assembly. 
in the appendix of my doctoral dissertation is a course we call the theology of spiritual gifts and how to find your spiritual gift and what the Bible says about spiritual gifts. And section six of that course is sign gifts in the New Testament. And there are four. And one of those is the gift of tongues. There's only one place in all the New Testament where the gift of tongues is specifically delineated. And that's in the Acts of the Apostles, where on the day of Pentecost, tongues are seen. And very specifically, he mentions 15 different languages. So what we learned from the book of Acts is that tongues on the day of Pentecost was indeed a real language. And you have to understand that prior to Pentecost, there were cultic groups that we can trace back into ancient Greece as early as the second century BC that spoke in ecstatic utterances. That is really no different from what we see today. So you say, well, how was, uh, how is that possible if they were speaking in tongues? Well, they were speaking in tongues, but they weren't speaking in the kind of tongues that were given in the book of Acts. And all I would say is that today people are not speaking in the kinds of tongues that they were speaking of in the book of Acts. And of course, the way some of my Pentecostal brethren get around this is they would say, okay, we admit that the tongues that we are speaking in today, no one can verify as a real actual language. And they would say that we're speaking in an angelic language. Well, um, in the passage they use, of course, is 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And so Paul is using what we would call hyperbole to make a point. And God does that sometimes in the scripture. He exaggerates a point so you can see his point. He is not saying that people will speak with the tongues of angels any more than he's saying, if I know all mysteries and have all knowledge, because there's only one person who knows all mysteries and has all knowledge, and that's the omniscient God. But he's saying by exaggeration, if I had all mysteries and all knowledge, but I didn't have love, what, what good is it? And if I spoke not only with the tongues of men's, but angelic languages, he's not saying that we do. So to uh, conclude from this text that what we are seeing today is the same thing in the Bible is really to diminish the miraculous nature of the gift of tongues. And again, really, if some of my Pentecostal friends who speak in tongues just followed the specific uh, guidelines that God gives when the church meets, then we wouldn't see the mess that we have today. He said only two or three in a given service, and then only if someone had the gift of interpretation. Where, you know, I've been in churches where, you know, dozens of people are all speaking in tongues at once. And that was the problem in Corinth. And Paul said, look, if an unbeliever comes in and he hears everybody talking at once, he's going to think you're a bunch of kooks. He's going to think you're mad. But if someone is speaking clearly, just like someone can respond to a specific bugle sound and they know what the bugle is calling them to do. If someone is speaking in a clear, understandable way, then indeed the unbeliever will fall on his face and he'll worship God. And so only two or three in a service, only one at a time, he specifies. And then only if someone has the gift of interpretation. So the miraculous nature of tongues is 
Carl Brogy, if he lived in the first century, of course, English wasn't a language then, but if I only spoke English and all of a sudden I could speak perfect Mandarese Chinese, you'd say, that's a miracle. He speaks a language he's never learned before, and he speaks it perfectly. And not only the language, but a dialect within the language, which again is underscored in Acts 2. That's the miracle nature of tongues. But for the sake of argument, let's say I have the gift of tongues and you have the gift of interpretation and you're convinced, oh yes, I have the gift of interpretation and I'm convinced, yes, I have the gift of tongues, though it's always amusing to me when I go to a foreign country and I, uh, you know, you speak in full thoughts through an interpreter, not half sentences, but full thoughts so they can interpret. And so when I give a full sentence, say, and then the interpreter goes on for three minutes, I know there's a problem. I know he's not really interpreting what I've said. Uh, And what's amusing to me is when I've been in churches where supposedly people can interpret and someone speaks in a tongue and then someone stands up and interprets and they've spoken for 30 seconds and then they stand up, thus saith the Lord, and they give this prophecy that rants on for 10 minutes Uh, there's something wrong there, but let's say I have the gift of tongues and you have the gift of interpretation and we happen to have it, uh, you know, videotaped for our viewers to put up on the podcasts or our internet services that we're offering to the Christian world. And we ought to be able to take your tongue and give it to anyone else you choose. You tell me with the gift of interpretation and we should come up with the same interpretation. It's never happened. And the charismatic Pentecostal movement hasn't been willing to subject itself to such a thing for such verifiable tests. So it, 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 I, I mean, I'm not trying to be unkind here, but they'll say, well, you don't believe in the power of God or, you know, you, no, they don't believe in the miraculous nature of God because they're diminishing the gift of tongues and the miracle nature of it as it's seen in the Holy Scripture. So it's really a, somewhat of a sham today. You say, well, what's happening? Well, it's not what God did. And look, I don't want to do something that God doesn't dictate. And it's certainly not a sign of spirituality, even if the gift of tongues were being given today, because it was really being given in the Corinthian church. And yet when Paul describes the church as a whole, he calls them a bunch of baby Christians. And it's not a sign of maturity. It was a vehicle for communication, Paul argues, Because remember, the New Testament had not been completed yet. And so you couldn't turn to Ephesians or or you couldn't turn to, you know, the book of Galatians or you couldn't turn to first Peter to see what God said on a particular topic because it wasn't written yet. And so God spoke miraculously. And even then you were to test the spirits to see if they be of God. Once the canon of scripture was completed, church history records that the gift of tongues dried up. Does that surprise you? No, it shouldn't. Because again, with the completed canon of scripture, anything that anyone would say in a church service via the gift of tongues and and interpretation, if it wasn't consistent or if it added to what God said or subtracted to what he said, then you were to reject it according to the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And so you were to reject such a thing if it was an addition or in subtraction to what God had said in his word. And so with that said, you would expect the gift of tongues to have dried up and it did. And it doesn't appear again until about 1900 in America uh, through a revival in in Los Angeles. We call it the Azusa Street Revival. 
And again, what appeared was not what we see in the book of Acts and what's delineated in God's word. And I've met countless numbers of people who have spoken in tongues who weren't even saved. Uh, They grew up in these assembly churches and Pentecostal churches and they spoke in tongues, but they didn't even know Christ as their savior. They were religious. They were Christianized, but not born again. You say, how do you know? Because when I asked them some basic questions, hey, if you were to die and God said, why should I let you in heaven? What would you say? Well, I'm a good person. and I go to church and I've spoken in tongues and I've done this and I've done that. Are they saved? No. Why? Because they think salvation is through works. Am I judging them? No, that's a judgment the Bible has made. I'm not judging a Mormon when I say he's not a Christian because Jesus said, unless you believe I am he, God in human flesh, you'll die in your sin. That's a judgment God has made. And I'm not judging a person who thinks salvation is by human effort to say he's not a Christian because that's a judgment God has made. You have to admit that you can't save yourself before you can count yourself as a genuine Christian. You have to trust in the death and resurrection of Christ alone. So that's the short answer, the long answer, if you really want to study it. But some people have their minds made up and they're basically saying, look, my whole spirituality is based on this thing. The way I think about myself and how spiritual I am is by this act that I do called tongues. And you need to rethink through your spirituality. And so some of them are saying, don't confuse me with the truth. You're going to wreck my spiritual life. And I would say, no, take a hard look at your spiritual life and find your sense of identity and who you are in Christ, not in some experience that you have. All right, let's go to the next question. 525-1859, toll free. Uh, we have to also do 843 area code now. I forgot. 843-525-1859 or toll free 877-924-7980. And the last call that came in was dictated. They'd like to know whether the Bible is specific about what happens when we die as to whether we immediately meet Jesus or if an angel takes us to him. Some believe one thing, others believe another. Is there scripture that would explain this? Well, clearly uh, the fact that when a believer dies, I'm dealing here just with a believer in response to your question, he leaves the body, the body is placed in the ground, and so the body is described as sleeping, so to speak. That's a beautiful metaphor. Some of the new translations Uh, don't use the word sleep. They just use the word death. Uh, That's an interpretive decision on their part. Uh, But if you just translate the text, it uses a different word. It uses the word sleep. And I I think that's important. That's why you want a Bible that is not interpreting for you, but is just translating as much as possible. There's always going to be a little bit of interpretation when you go from the original language to a receptor language, another language in another tongue. It's impossible not to because of the way languages are structured. Like in Greek, the verb can be the very first word in a sentence, where in our language, it's usually subject, verb, object. So there's there's some interpretive decisions that go on, but as close as possible, you want not to uh, interpret, you want to translate. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Uh, the NIV 84, and I wouldn't recommend the, the new NIV that has come out that is more gender neutral and has altered some of the meanings of verses. Uh, it says those who are dead. That's an interpretive decision. God said those who are asleep. Why is that important? Because it's giving us a picture of God's ultimate plan for the body. Just like last night, you lay down 
in your bed and you got up this morning, God is making a promise in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about the future of the body. It's laid down, so to sleep, in a grave, but someday it is going to get up because God's going to raise it up. But understand, unlike Seventh-day Adventists who say body, soul, and spirit are all asleep, he's describing very clearly not the spiritual portion of man, but only the physical portion of man. We don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant about those who are asleep, those who are dead, that you may not grieve as do the rest, speaking of an unbelieving world, who have no hope. Uh, They may have a hope, but it's a false hope, and therefore it's not a real hope. And so Paul can say they have no hope. You know, most unbelievers, when you go to the funeral home, they'll say, well, he's in a better place. Well, not if he was a Christ hater and an unbeliever, he's in a worse place. But, you know, they have to manufacture in their mind a sense of comfort. Well, we don't have to because we stand on truth. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him, underscore that in your thinking, with him, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5. and Philippians chapter 1, he makes a, a different kind of statement. He says, for me to live as Christ and die is gain. If my spiritual portion is asleep with my body in the grave, then there is no gain at death. It's a loss. It's a loss of fellowship. But to live as Christ and to die is gain. It's more of Christ. For if I'm to live on in the flesh, in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire, listen to this, to depart and be with Christ. For that's very much better. Why is it better? Because you're with the Lord. And that's a gain. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So Paul said, on the one hand, if I stay here, you're going to benefit from my ministry and it's going to help you. But if I had a real choice, in one sense, I'd, I'd rather go home and, and be with Jesus. So absent from the body, present with the Lord. And that's why Paul can say, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him. Who's he bringing from heaven? Uh, From heaven, those who've already died because their spirit is in heaven. He will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Uh, This is something that Jesus spoke of in passages like John 14. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And so uh, Jesus spoke of such things that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So he's coming back with the departed spirits. He's going to reunite the body that is in the grave or wherever it is, if it's been cremated, not certainly the ideal way to dispose of a body biblically, or if it's been lost at sea, like maybe this whole ship has through this hurricane, God will find the body wherever it is. He will raise it up in a split second. He will turn it into a resurrection body and bring the spirit back into it. Are angels involved? Well, angels, the Bible says, are God's servants who minister to those who will inherit salvation. So they're involved in our life all the way. And again, whenever Jesus tells a parable, he never uses an untruth to communicate a um, 
a truth. He only uses truth because he is the truth to communicate truth. And so when the Lord in Luke chapter 16 speaks of the uh, rich man who dies and goes to hell and the poor man who is Lazarus, as he's named in the parable, and some, so, some think, therefore, it's not a parable. And they may be right. We don't know. We can't be dogmatic. But if it is a parable, it's the only one where someone's name is used. It doesn't change anything in either way, however you look at it. But the, uh, the believer who dies, the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is the Old Testament metaphor where believers went. It was also called paradise. Uh, today, heaven is uh, called heaven, and it's also called paradisus, uh, paradise. So that might be confusing to you, but Old Testament saints uh, did not go to the same place that we do today at the moment of death. Now we go directly to be with the Lord. And so uh, angels, though, were involved. And so that's really appropriate with what you might think, right? I mean, God's bringing you to a new place and he brings some angelic servants along and they probably prep you along the way and uh, it's uh, and they carry you into the presence of the Lord. Great question. Let's go to the next one. I think we have a live caller who's been waiting. We do indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to. Uh, this past Sunday, a Christian brother uh, asked me, he said, have you heard about you know the comments David Jeremiah said about endorsing Trump? I said, no, I didn't. So I looked it up yesterday and uh Apparently, David Jeremiah and Robert Jeffers uh, attended a meeting with Donald Trump at his office in New York. Uh, they were, as far as I read, there were the only two conservative pastors. The rest were the TBN uh, prosperity pastors, men and women. And they, uh, I guess, all laid hands on Trump, prayed for him, anointed him, etc. The supposed uh, comment by David Jeremiah was that he said, we need a... Uh, uh, a black person to come alongside Donald Trump to help him with the black vote. Apparently, he got uh, criticism for it, and he came back and said, this comment in no way should uh, be mistaken for an endorsement. I haven't endorsed anyone. I've met with Ben Carson. I've been invited to speak with or meet with Jeb Bush. So he kind of uh, said it wasn't an endorsement. Um a lot of these Christian pastors have come out in support of Donald Trump. Uh, I've seen them on TV. They said, you know, I believe he's a Christian. I immediately thought of a Bible line a few, maybe a year, several years ago when uh, the last election, where you mentioned on there that you and your son-in-law had met in your office with Rick Santorum and his oldest daughter, and you spoke with him, walked him through the plan of salvation, uh, you didn't know where he stood now, but but at the time you felt like he wasn't saved. I thought that if you were invited to speak with Trump, that was the thing that you would admit you would actually go to first, ask him the diagnostic questions, how sure you you would go to heaven, make sure he was saved. Uh, I personally support Ted Cruz because I believe he's an evangelical Christian. His father is an evangelical pastor. He's been consistent. From beginning to end, there are some other Christians in the field. I know you shouldn't take someone's uh, statement at face value, are you a Christian or not, but 
I know I've rambled on, but I was just wondering what you think of what's your opinion on all of this. Well, it's a good question. Uh, my son, uh, Jameson, who's very politically minded, actually sent me that video clip, and I watched the prayer meeting and the prayer that Dr. Jeremiah, Dr. Jeffries, and some other men had over him. I wouldn't say they anointed him. Uh, they did not. Uh, but they did a number of people lay hands on him and pray for him. They weren't laying hands on him in the New Testament sense and that they were ordaining him. But they were indeed praying for him, and it was kind of amusing to watch, I have to tell you. Because, uh, you know, Trump's a character. I mean, he, he's, he's amusing to watch, and he's got that Donald Duck face, of course. I'm saying it in a good way because he uses the same kind of terms to describe himself. And, uh, and at times, if you watch the video, he'll actually open his eyes and he'll look around like, what's going on here? What, what meeting have I gotten into? Uh, if you listen to Dr. Jeremiah's prayer very carefully, and in the video clip I had, I, Dr. Jeffers was not praying, but um, there was a, um, a Pentecostal pastor, there was uh, David Jeremiah, and there was a, a Jewish believing pastor who prayed. And among other things, David Jeremiah prayed that... Um, you know, we would, God would put a, a, a godly Christian and that he would help Donald Trump to understand these great truths. So if you listen carefully to the prayer and it's on YouTube, um, if you listen carefully to what Dr. Jeremiah says, uh, he is not saying that he is a believer. He is being, you know, very careful um, about how, um, how he describes him. Um, with that said, uh, let me say parenthetically that, um, do I think he's a Christian? No, I don't. Um, you know, he says the Bible is my favorite book and his second favorite book is the one he wrote. You know, the guy is a egomaniac and, and, and and he makes no apology for it, which is so amusing to listen to him. But, uh, would I want him as president? Not really. Um, is he a brilliant guy? Yeah, he is. He's a fantastic businessman. That's why he's been so successful. But if we think that just bringing in some really sharp businessman who might try to clean up the economy is going to bring the blessing of God, then we are really deceived and we have missed it. We need someone and they may not necessarily be born again. But they have strong values that I believe God can bless. Certainly, we've had many presidents in our nation who have not been born-again Christians. Many who have been, but many who have not been. But nonetheless, they were still influenced by the Judeo-Christian ethic. And they would not endorse something like Planned Parenthood, as our current president is doing in the murder of little babies. You know, trying to argue, well, the tape was, you know, uh, spliced together. No, it wasn't. Uh, they may have brought the highlights, but the truth was there and nothing was distorted. Uh, we wouldn't um, have a president in past years who would say homosexual marriage is okay and then to go to other nations of the world and to promote it. No, 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 no. That, that's, that kind of evil God will not bless. And you can have the sharpest businessman in the world who will step into the White House. But if he doesn't have a Judeo-Christian ethic, it's a disaster. Uh, you know, supposedly 
you know, Trump has had an awakening over the issue of abortion, and I hope he has. I hope he really would be pro-life. But what changed his mind? And, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't heard that. Certainly, um, maybe he, he read a passage of Scripture, or maybe he thought it through medically, that, you know, viability gets younger and younger and younger, and so how can we, how can we endorse abortion? But do I believe he's a born-again Christian? No. And I would much rather have someone with real wisdom there. Yeah, it's true. Rick Santorum and many political leaders have come through my office and he was not a believer, at least not that day. Uh, I asked them the diagnostic questions, both of he and his daughter. And it wasn't my son-in-law. It was my associate pastor, Larry. And uh, he was not a believer. Um, We walked him through the plan of salvation. I hope he's become a believer. Is he a moral man? Yes, he is. Very strongly so. And, you know, I'd, I'd rather have a Rick Santorum in the office. I met with Ted Cruz myself. I was invited to a private meeting with him in Columbia about six months ago. And yeah, he knows the Lord. He loves Christ. He really, truly loves the Lord. Um, I'd, I'd love to see him in office. He doesn't seem to have that favor right now, but things could certainly change. And he's a, he's a fine uh, believing man with uh, some really strong principles that I believe God could bless. But it's going to take even more than a born-again Christian in the White House to change the fabric of our nation. There's going to have to be a nation of people who turn back to the living God and fear God. And the church is so lukewarm today, and the church is not all that much different from the world Many, because they don't really know the Lord, though they know all the right words. And so, you know, you got pastors who say, well, you know, go out and drink. Just don't get too drunk. It's okay. Have your wine. You know, and then they quote the latest movie and this and that. And, you know, they don't really fear God. They're just popular and they like people to like them. And that's really sad, but that's our day. And so let, let the judgment begin with the household of faith, Peter says. So we can point at the world all we want, but it really comes down to the local churches across America. And that's where judgment needs to begin. There has to be a turning from the lukewarm spirit of this age uh, back to a passionate love for Christ. And then God could bless this nation once again and turn it around. Because if my people will, uh, you know, follow me and humble themselves before the Lord, as the chronicler says, he's speaking about his people. And they turn from their wicked ways. God can bless the land. Now, certainly contextually, that's a, a promise to the land of Israel and the people of Israel, but the principle is applied in a broad sense based on New Testament exegetical principles. Uh, But that's the problem is God's people won't turn from their wicked ways and God's men won't call them to turn from their wicked ways because they like to be liked. And so the solution is not political, it's spiritual. And getting, you know, even a Ted Cruz who really loves the Lord, God could certainly use that, but God may give us what we deserve. And God is judging this nation. It's not he will be, he is. Romans 1 teaches the wrath of God is being revealed, not will be revealed, but the wrath of God is being revealed. 
and it's being revealed right now in America. And he describes a three-stage process there in the book of Romans because they refused to acknowledge God as God and give him thanks. And we started doing this in a very concerted, uh, measured way in the 1960s. We said, we don't want Bible reading in our schools. We don't want prayer in our schools. A child cannot pray even out loud over his lunch in our schools. We don't want the Ten Commandments in our schools. We don't want to describe God as creator. We want to uh, affirm evolution, that the creation made the creation, not the creator. God made the creation. And when people have that spirit, God gives them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity. That's the 1960s, 70s, and 80s in America, the sexual revolution, the new morality, which is nothing more than the old immorality. And so then the next step is God gave them over to degrading passions where women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire towards one another. That's stage two. And so America decided, no, we're going to adopt homosexuality. And we have a president and a vice president and a Congress and all these people who are talking about all these little silly, stupid things about, yes, we need to look We should love anyone. But we shouldn't love what's evil. We shouldn't love the the perversion and the abomination of homosexuality any more than we should something else. You know, in Columbia, South Carolina, you know, two weeks ago, uh, the mayor of the city, along with all these leaders up there, you know, they're passing all kinds of pro-gay things that are against God's principles. They think they can do that and not expect God to deal with them. There's things that are going on. We look at things from a purely uh, secular perspective, but there's a lot that's going on in this nation that is the wrath of God being revealed. And so they did not see fit to acknowledge them any longer stage three. And now we've moved into stage three. God gave them over to a depraved mind. Uh, You could translate it an upside down mind where you call good evil and evil good. So now, you know, if I stand up in a pulpit and I say homosexuality is wrong, if I say there's no such thing as a transgender person, Bruce Jenner is still Bruce Jenner. I don't care what you call him. It's a, he's a he. He can call himself a female, but he's a he. That's how God made him. So now I am evil. What are they doing? They're calling good, evil, and evil good. And so if you want to see what America is going to become, read Romans 1, 28 to 32. And he goes through 21 vices that are going to increase and multiply. And that's where we are going as a nation. This is the new America. You really want your gay rights and your transgender people and your, your in your public schools. We've got to have transgender bathrooms and all this other stuff. And, and now universities this fall are, you know, they're, they're using gender neutral language. And you want that? Well, then you're going to get what Romans 1, 28 and follows spells out. And we need some men of God who will stand up in their pulpits and call God's people to righteous, holy living. You know, and, 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 and if you're against certain things, you're, you're, you're legalistic. 
you 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 know you're you're uh you're trying to find a, a sense of a righteousness and a, a list of do's and don'ts yeah you know moody bible institute was legalistic for 100 years because they opposed drinking yeah, they were just legalistic. You know, they, they just missed it. But now we're enlightened. And so you can have your cigar and your glass of wine and do whatever you want. It's pathetic. It's sad where the American church is. So let's not forget. Judgment begins with the household of God. And judgment begins in my heart. It begins in your heart. That's what we need to focus on. I'm not saying we shouldn't exercise our political right. We should, and we should try to vote for the most godly person. Whatever he does for our pocketbook is secondary. Um, so let's go to the next question. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And a caller would like to know, where in Scripture does it say that the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head? Why does Jesus say this? Well, it's in Luke's gospel, and it's in Luke chapter 9 and verse 57. And it says, and as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's basically saying, you must be willing to give up what others consider to be necessities. Uh, The bird has a place to lay his head at night, a nice nest that he's woven together based on the way God made the bird. And the fox has a den in which he goes and finds a sense of security. And the Lord is just saying, you you need to be willing to give up things that you view as a necessity to really follow me. So he's exacting the cost of following the living God, because people give excuses all the time why they can't follow the Lord. And there's nothing more important than following him. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Another listener called and said they know that uh, God created Adam and Eve and that God created Jesus. So why does God call Jesus his firstborn child? What about Adam and Eve? Well, uh, someone, I think our first question asked about the genealogy in Matthew. And again, when you come to uh, Luke chapter 3, he does it a little bit differently. He gives the genealogy. Uh, not through Abraham, but uh, through Mary and through Adam. And so it goes all the way down to um, the final verse in the chapter, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, uh, the son of God. And so uh, Adam, of course, is described as a son of God, uh, just as we are described as sons and daughters of God. But that's not the same as God, the son, uh, who is a unique person. Adam and Eve were real, actual people. And by the way, if uh, we want to affirm theistic evolution, then we have to deny the clear teaching of Scripture. Just as Christ, that the genealogy begins with, um, is a real person. Even so, each of the people measured in this genealogy in Luke 3:23 all the way through verse 38 are real, actual people. That's the way the Bible describes Adam. Genesis 1 through 11 is not some kind of a parable to teach us some spiritual truth. Adam was a real person, and through Adam, everyone sinned. Why are we born with a sin nature? Because we sinned in Adam. Uh, when Adam sinned, all sinned, Romans 5:12 teaches. And that's why children have a proclivity to do what's wrong. You don't have to teach a three-year-old to be selfish. They are naturally selfish. You have to train them up to share. You don't have to teach a five-year-old to lie. 
They'll figure it out on their own. You have to teach them to tell the truth because by nature, as King David said in Psalm 51, 5, my mother conceived me in iniquity. I was born in sin because in Adam, in the loins of Adam was the whole human race. And when Adam rebelled against God, I rebelled against him. You say, well, I don't understand that. Well, forget forget what happened in Adam. Just look at your own sin. So Adam was a real person, a real historical person. In fact, um, there are people today who want to deny that and they have to deny so much truth to come to that conclusion. So, you know, you got a Tim Keller who's in favor of theistic evolution. That's horrible. That's undermining the book of Genesis. And we wonder why an unbelieving world is throwing up over us. And yet evangelicals love Tim Keller. I don't love Tim Keller. He denied the historicity of Genesis one through three. That's heretical. That's against 2000 years of church history. Why would I want to promote a Tim Keller? When, you know, years ago, some, someone on our church, oh, this is a great book. And it's not a great book. Um, he's affirming theistic evolution. Uh, that undermines scripture. That undermines the work of Christ. Paul's analogy in Romans 5 is just as death spread to all men through the act of one man, Adam. Even so, through the act of one person, Christ, salvation was provided for all. Paul's entire analogy falls apart You know, God didn't need billions and billions of years to create the world or to create man. Um, He could have done it, you know, in three seconds if he wanted. In fact, there's coming a new day, which these theistic evolutionistic Christians don't deny when God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Is he going to do it in six days? He's going to do it in a split second, according to Revelation 21. In a split second, he's going to give us a resurrection body. God doesn't need any time at all. He did it in the time frame he did for a reason, which I cover in my series in Genesis, if, if you're interested. Anyway, I think maybe we can squish in one more question, or are we out of time? Well, we're rolling the music right now. All right, so, so we're out of time, and uh, let me just say, if uh, you're new to the Bible line, these are posted uh, online. After they are done, people email us from all parts of the country and even foreign countries. And sometimes they can't, based on the time zone they are in or their work schedules, listen live. But they're posted. And when you go and look at the post, you'll see all the questions that were answered for that particular day. And if you uh, email us and say, oh, mine was the fifth question, you don't have to listen to the whole Bible line. But you can just kind of scroll down through the bar until you find your question and listen to the answer. And we'll do our best. People get frustrated with me. I sent you a question a month ago. Look, some days I get 10 questions that come in. And a lot of them I will uh, not answer on the air. But I will specifically respond back to in a typed answer because of the nature of the question and the urgency of the question. But if I spent all my day answering questions, I wouldn't prepare sermons and I wouldn't have anything to offer the people I shepherd. One of the nice things about the Bible Line uh, app and on the Search the Scriptures website is you can actually do a search for a question like, you know, drinking or yep. uh, tongues. And, and it'll show you all the different programs where we discuss that. Topic. There you go. So that's always helpful. So anyway, thank you for joining us today for the Bible line. If you're listening and you don't have a church home and you live within a 50-mile radius of Beaufort County, we invite you to Community Bible Church at 638 Paris Island Gateway in Beaufort and at the Bridge Center, which is on the border of Hilton Head and Bluffton, meeting every Sunday at 11.30.